Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 57, Posier. Last time, we covered the battles of Fromelles in Delville Wood, which saw South African and Australian troops fight their first engagements on the Western Front. This week, we're going to stick with the Australians as they face their next challenge, the Battle of Posier Ridge. Like Fromelles, Posier Ridge occupies an important place in Australian memory. Widely seen as a costly waste, the battle is often dismissed as another of Hag's misinformed ventures. A total of five divisions took part in the fighting, three Australian and two British, and all suffered terrible losses for an objective thought attainable on July the 1st. The Australians launched their attack on July 23rd, and over the next 42 days, engaged in a desperate struggle for control of the ridge. In the end, some 22,000 Australian and British troops had been killed, wounded, or went missing, with the three Australian divisions taking over 11,000 casualties, all for a village of just three square kilometres. But is there more to this story? I would argue, yes, yes there is. And, as we'll see, the capture of Posier Ridge meant the Australians had completed a near-impossible task. In a contest that has drawn comparisons to the Battle of Verdun, the Australians overcame some of the most complex German defences, and in the process, achieved a victory which allowed Anglo-French forces to take their next step in the Somme campaign. The fall of Posier ensured the big push would continue, thus maintaining the Allies' methodical destruction of the German army. On July 16th, Haig met with Rawlinson at his headquarters at the Chateau Curieux just outside of Amiens. Surrounded by their senior officers and support staff, Haig and Rawlinson pondered their next move. There were a number of concerns on the table. First was a recent proposal from Fernhand Foch, who just a few days prior informed the British he was looking to expand the French army's presence north of the river. Foch wanted to organize a combined Anglo-French assault with the French attacking parallel to the British line in the direction of Cambrai. Haig was on board with this idea, as he was eager to have the two allies fight on a united front. Rawlinson, however, had his concerns. Although Rawlinson agreed in principle, Foch's proposal came with a caveat. If Foch was to bring his army north, he would need the British to protect their approach by capturing the twin villages of Jinji and Guillemont which were located atop a plateau just southeast of Longueval. Rawlinson doubted he could do this without exposing his left flank, which extended all the way to the Albert Bapaume Road. If Rawlinson was to pivot his advance, he would need to protect his left flank from enemy attack. It was judged that the most effective safeguard against this was to finally capture the Posier Ridge, as this would allow the British to observe German movements from Tiepval all the way to Bapaume. The British had put off attacking the ridge for nearly three weeks, but with an opportunity to fight alongside the French at stake, the time had finally come to secure this heralded position. Thus, the security of Posier Ridge became priority number one. It was clear that Rawlinson could not be expected to handle both the attacks on Jinji Guillemont and Posier Ridge. Instead, Haig turned to Herbert Go and Reserve Army for the latter, which occupied the north side of the main highway. For those of you unfamiliar with Reserve Army, you're probably asking yourself just what the heck Reserve Army was. 
Since it's important for future reference, a brief explanation is in order. Reserve Army was born from the need to have a ready-at-hand exploitation force, one that could act as a support system to the main advance. One of the problems that befuddled Allied commanders was how to exploit the initial gains of an attack. They had seen time and time again that getting across no man's land was not the issue. The real difficulty came once the infantry entered the enemy system. Once inside, communication with the rear became problematic. As a result, many opportunities have been lost due to poor command and control, a result of technology having not caught up to reality. Reserve Army was the British response to this problem. As its name suggests, Reserve Army served two primary functions. First, to be a readily available supply of reinforcements, usually infantry and cavalry, to be deployed at a moment's notice. As a second function, it could also fight as a standard army unit. On July the 1st, Reserve Army was positioned north of the Albert Bapaume Road, where it was supposed to help capture Teepfowl and Pozier Ridge. Instead, it received orders to stand down just after noon hour, having taken no part in the fighting. The following day, Reserve Army received a new set of orders. When Haig shut down operations north of the main road, it was put in charge of those 4th Army units mauled in the opening attack. Its job now was to rehabilitate the shattered remains of 8th and 10th Corps, and have them ready to rejoin the fight as soon as possible. However, the man in charge of Reserve Army, Lieutenant General Sir Herbert Goh, had not been happy with his new assignment. Herbert Goh is among the most controversial of Haig's generals. At just 44 years of age, Goh was one of the youngest officers in the upper echelon of British command. Noted for his quick wit, intelligence, and self-confidence, Goh seemed to represent a new class of officer. He was a man very much in Haig's mold, a formal cavalry officer and noted thruster who was always for pushing on. These characteristics, energy, drive, and ruthlessness, were the foundation of his success as a commander, but they were also what made him deeply unpopular. Today, Herbert Goh is counted among the donkey class of the First World War generals, largely because his meteoric rise is credited to Haig's patronage. To be fair, Goh had his faults. He had a reputation of being a bully. He habitually blamed his staff when things did not go his way, and would regularly sack his divisional commanders if he felt they were being too cautious. With his bullet-shaped head and piercing eyes, Goh, in the words of historian Nick Lloyd, had cultivated a climate of fear among his subordinates. Most annoyingly, he loved to micromanage, but at the same time, ignored the finer details of command. That being said, Goh had Hag's ear, and Hag would often turn to Goh when things needed a kick. Indeed, it was Hag's blind loyalty to Goh that has received almost universal criticism from historians. But in the summer of 1916, Goh was largely untested. He was still learning his craft, and commanding Reserve Army was an ideal assignment. Given his hard-charging attitude, it should come as no surprise that Goh was not content with sitting tight. After learning that joint losses between 8th and 10th Corps were in excess of 20,000 men, Goh concluded they would not be fit for service for quite some time. He later wrote in his diary, quote, I was now faced with an unenviable task. The change was complete. In one day, my thoughts and ideas had to move from the consolidation of a victorious pursuit 
to those of the rehabilitation of the shattered wing of an army. End quote. So from July 5th onwards, Go had to content himself with his new duties. He did what he could for the devastated units, slowly rebuilding their confidence by injecting new recruits and equipment. Then, on July 16th, Go finally received the news he was hoping for. He was ordered to capture Posier Ridge, and was expected to move immediately. To assist his effort, Hagen made available the 1st Anzac Corps, consisting of 1st, 2nd, and 4th Australian divisions. Thus, it fell to the Australians to take Posier Ridge. Before we get into the Australians in Posier, I need to make a correction from last day. I incorrectly referred to the Australian forces in France as the Australian Expeditionary Force, when in fact, it was the Australian Imperial Force, so AIF instead of AEF. That was a my bad on that one, and I want to thank listener Nathan for setting me straight. Getting back to the story, the village of Posier crowns the highest crest of Posier Ridge, at the most northern extension of the old German line, about 8 kilometers east of Albert. Once described by Henry Rawlinson as an extraordinarily fine defensive position, its strategic location astride the Albert Bapaume Road made it an alluring target for British planners. So much so, that it was, most unrealistically, 8th Division's final objectives for July the 1st. As the Australians made their way through the clogged streets of Albert, the battlefield was unlike anything they had experienced. Even Gallipoli veterans were appalled at what they saw a shattered wasteland of scorched trees, mud, and misery. Bodies have been tossed hurriedly into craters, and covered by a few inches of soil, recalled Lieutenant Art Smith, an artillery officer attached to 3rd Brigade 1st Division, whose journey to Posier took him to the old La Boiselle battlefield. In the trenches, where it was not too risky to get out to bury the dead, they have just been buried in the parapets, or on the trench floor where they lay by throwing a few spadefuls of earth over them. By the time the Australians arrived at Posier, the village had already been reduced to a pulp, its cottages and main thoroughfare long obliterated by artillery. The only remaining feature was the twisted remains of the village rail line. To one witness, it was a lunar landscape devoid of life and purpose. To the Australians, it must have seemed impossible to fight in such horrible conditions. It certainly did to 1st Division's commanding officer, Cyril Harold Walker, who managed to secure a three-day respite for his men to dig sap trenches and repair broken wire. The assault, originally slated for July 20th, was pushed back to the 23rd. 1st Division would lead the attack, and their orders were straightforward. Capture and consolidate the village of Posier, and then push up the high ground to Mouquet Farm, just east of Teepval, which marked the highest point of the battlefield. Before this could happen, they would have to overcome the stingy German defenses. Now I've gone ahead and posted a map to the Great War Podcast.podbean.com, which has all the information we're about to talk about already on it, but if you're currently unable to access the map, a quick overview of the battlefield will be to everyone's benefit. As I mentioned earlier, Posier sat astride the Albert Bapaum Road, and defended the main approach to the ridge, which offered commanding views of the surrounding valleys. For this reason, the Germans had gone to back-breaking lengths to make it airtight. South of the village, 
was a system of trenches which sealed Pozier into a pocket. The first of these was Pozier Trench, which formed the outer crust of the defensive line. Pozier Trench ran from the western tip of the village, where it was supported by a reinforced blockhouse. This blockhouse was known to the British as Gibraltar Tower, but the Germans had given it a more practical name, Panzerturm, or Armored Turret. Gibraltar Tower was a key component to the German defenses. It dominated the southern and western approaches, and also provided the Germans with excellent observatory. Heading east along Pozier Trench, we come to the most distinguishing trait of the Pozier battlefield. Protecting the right flank were two parallel trenches, which hooked around the village to the north. These two trenches were identified as Old German Trenches 1 and 2, or their more common abbreviation, OG1 and OG2. OG1 being on the left closer to the village, and OG2 to the right. The importance of OG1 and OG2 lay in their relation to the other trenches. Not only did they offer fire support to Pozier Trench, the intersections allowed for the formation of several redoubts and armored junctions, Gibraltar Tower being one, and Munster Alley, at the junction of Pozier and the OG Trenches, was another. It should also be noted that these were just the primary defenses. There were also MG nests, sniper posts, and slit trenches, which split from the village like tentacles. In other words, Pozier would be a tough nut to crack. More ominously, the shell-swept landscape offered a warning to the Australians. Those who had been at Gallipoli had seen this level of destruction before. It meant the Germans had their batteries zeroed on the village as well. Unless the British were able to knock them out, a steel rain would pummel the Australians each step of the way. By daybreak on July 23rd, 1st Division was dug in south of Pozier. 1st Division would attack with two brigades abreast, four battalions deep. On the left, opposite Gibraltar Tower, was 1st Brigade, made up from 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Battalions. 1st and 2nd Battalions were to take the primary objectives, with 3rd and 4th Battalions leapfrogging onto the 2nd. To the right of 1st Brigade was 3rd Brigade, who would follow a similar pattern, with 11th and 9th Battalions in the lead, followed by 10th and 12th. Essentially, the assault was a conventional pincer move. 1st Brigade was to secure Pozier Trench and Gibraltar Tower. 4th and 3rd Battalions would then move through the village and secure the Orchard, before linking up with 3rd Brigade near Rebel Street Trench, which ran off the OG lines to the north. Meanwhile, 3rd Brigade on the right was to secure Munster Alley, and then proceed to bomb up the OG lines, effectively cutting off the village from the northeast. The main objective here was the Pozier Windmill, just off the main road, a site later adopted as an Australian memorial in the late 1930s. It was at the windmill where the struggle for Pozier would reach its zenith. The inscription on the memorial describes the Australians as having fallen more thickly than on any other battlefield of the war. The Battle of Pozier began at dawn on July 23rd. British and Australian gunners unleashed a bombardment of enormous proportions, turning the ridge into a sea of flame and thunder. As they waited out in no man's land, the Australians braved themselves for the struggle. Never had they seen such an awesome display of firepower. It dwarfed anything they had experienced at Gallipoli or in Egypt, 
and those who fought against the Turks, were led into a false sense of security. Although the Turk was a formidable fighting man, there were no measure against the iron discipline of the German army. Where a barrage would likely scatter a Turkish formation, the Germans held together, repaying their tormentors in full once the shelling lifted. For many Australians, Pozier marked their first contest with a first-class opponent, and it would mark a brutal introduction to the Somme battlefields. As the Australians observed the roaring typhoon, their hubris could be forgiven. After all, the shelling was grotesquely beautiful. As Lance Corporal Douglas Horton of 1st Battalion recalled, quote, A terrific thunderstorm on a pitch-dark night. In the lightning flashes, one caught glimpses of phantom figures, some with rifles at the slope, striding through the hell that surrounded them. The noise overhead, apart from the bursting of the innumerable shells, recalled the swish of the wings of countless of thousands of birds flying above. One involuntarily wondered why one barrage did not crash into the other. End quote. After 30 minutes of shelling, the guns fell silent. Officers blew their whistles, and the attack began. The German defenses in Pozier Trench had been torn apart by the barrage, allowing the Australians to quickly consolidate the position. As 1st Battalion pushed into the village, 3rd Battalion on the right faced problems along the OG trenches. The junction between the OGs and Munster Alley had come to life with German counterfire. Many veterans recall the hissing and cracking of the machine guns on this dark morning. It was at this armored junction where the first Victoria Cross was awarded. As his company advanced up OG-1, Private John Leake of 9th Battalion was under bombardment from German mortars. The Germans had been using this weapon to great effect, keeping the Australians to the outside. Knowing his company was exposed, Leake risked life and limb. Dashing forward over open ground, he tossed three grenades into the trench, killing a mortar party which had been caught unawares. Leake then jumped into the trench, and dispatched the remaining Germans with bayonet. This allowed his company to move from the exposed area and into the protection of the junction. When his company commander entered, he found Private Leake sitting alone, wiping blood off his bayonet with his felt hat. Leake's courage won him the first of seven Victoria Crosses awarded to the Australians in the Battle of Pozier. The Australians soon discovered that navigating the OG trenches would be more difficult than they imagined. 3rd Battalion had secured a foothold at the south end of OG-1, near the intersection with Pozier Trench. They were then confronted with a labyrinth of communication and fire trenches as they worked their way up. The lead platoons had already used up most of their bombs, and without resupply, the prospect of meaningful gains remained suspect. 10th Battalion was sent in to reinforce 9th Battalion at 1.30am, but faced heavy resistance. Nevertheless, 9th and 10th Battalions were able to put a stamp on the junction between OG-1 and Pozier Trench. The first objective had been secure. With a front line established on the Albert-Bapam Road, 1st Division could launch further attacks beyond Pozier. By late afternoon on July 23rd, 4th Brigade had secured the remains of Gibraltar Tower. Its carapace had been stripped, but the reinforced cellars and stairwells underground remained intact. This provided 1st Division an invaluable forward position, as well as a temporary aid station. 
As night fell on July 23rd, the assault had been a partial success. On the left, 1st Brigade occupied half the village, and as a symbolic victory, had captured the Posier Commandant from the cellars of Gibraltar Tower. However, the Australian positions were fragile. The Germans still held large sections of the OG trenches, meaning the Australians were contained within the village. The high ground leading to Mouquet Farm was also in German possession. Thus, the Australians had put themselves in a spot where they could be surrounded on three sides. Their only hope was to break out before the Germans could take advantage. Herbert Goh was unhappy with the day's progress. For July 24th, he again ordered the Australians to complete the capture of Posier, while at the same time, ordered 3rd Brigade to finish their advance up the OG trenches. Unfortunately, the cumbersome British command system failed to keep up with events. With shorter communication lines, the Germans had adapted much quicker, and on July 24th, the battle for Posier changed forever. With startling speed, the Germans altered their tactics. The district commander, General Max von Boehm, decided it was best to husband his resources. Boehm knew that Posier village was not the real prize. It was the ridge that the British were after. Against von Belov's climb over our corpses memo of July the 3rd, Boehm took a page from Peyton's defense at Verdun. He ordered his infantry and artillery to relocate to the high ground of Mouquet Farm, and then proceeded to shell the living crap out of the village. Boehm's timely move turned Posier from a conventional battle into an artillery slugfest. The village came alive with the scream of shells, as both sides hoped to pound the other into submission. Here, the Australian gunners found their element. Their training in the deserts of Egypt had prepared them for this type of battle. Under a scorching summer sun and rising temperatures, the Australian gunners rammed home shell after shell, the barrels glowing red hot. So intense grew the shellfire that one corporal described it as a raving madhouse. Photos from this phase of the battle depict sweating Australian artillerymen, stripped to their bare chests, ears bleeding from concussed eardrums, their distinctive felt hats seemingly glued to their heads. The fighting during this period, in the high heat of summer, with relentless, pounding artillery exchanges and desperate attacks, represent what I feel to be the true heart and horror of the Somme battlefield. From July 24th to 27th, the Australians would fail to push beyond Posier. German artillery ground up attacking brigades, while the unconquered OG trenches were equally deadly. After three days of terrible fighting, 1st Division was replaced by the newly arrived 2nd Division, and Go wasted no time in throwing 2nd Division into the fray. Had he seen the condition of 1st Division, he may have had a change of heart. In four days of fighting, 1st Division had lost 181 officers and just under 5,000 men either killed, wounded, or missing. A terrible toll, yet to go there was no choice but to continue. Without Posier Ridge, the success of 4th Army's advance in the south was far from certain. In spite of all the carnage and suffering, the Australians never wavered. They attacked again and again, day after day and night after night. Soon, they earned the respect of their German adversaries. Quote, the British infantrymen were, without exception, 
personally courageous and daring. And through these characteristics, they contradicted the underestimate which we generally made concerning the members of the young Kitchener army, recalled a Bavarian lieutenant. As a side note, the Germans rarely differentiated between English, Canadian, or Australian units, hence the reference to the British in this testimony. Colonial distinctions did not arrive until historians were able to sift through the documents and assemble a more accurate picture. Simply put, if you fought for the British Empire, you were British or Englander to the Germans, regardless of what corner of the globe you came from. With 2nd Division having replaced the dilapidated 1st Division, the fight for Pozier continued. Under immense pressure from Go, 2nd Division's commanding officer, Major General James Gordon Leggy, organized an attack to take place the night of July 28th. Leggy's first attack is the source of major controversy. Leggy knew he was in no condition to attack. The shelling had pulverized the battlefield, and his men had no idea where they were. The maps they had been given were obsolete the moment they arrived. Even worse, there were no support trenches or staging areas. Some men had been in the trenches for less than a day before being ordered over the top. When the division attacked on July 28th, it was a dismal failure. In a renewed attempt to push the right wing up the OG trenches, the Australians were lacerated by artillery. By July 30th, 3,500 men had become casualties, and the effort had gained nothing. Predictably, Go put the blame on Leggy, but we'll get back to that in a moment. The battle for Pozier was devouring more men and material than originally planned. Over the next three weeks, three Australian divisions were rotated through the sector. At least 19 assaults were made, most of which were failures. By August, the area around the village had been shelled beyond recognition, and the sheer level of violence had taken its toll on both sides. Across no man's land, the Germans were horrified at what they saw. Although they had deflected every attack, each defense took a little out of them. The path to Muket Farm was littered with Australian dead, and the stench had become unbearable. The following description of the battlefield comes from Reserve Lieutenant Walter Schultz, 8th Company Reserve Infantry Regiment, who fought at Pozier. Schultz's description is a little graphic, but it does show the desperation in which the Germans fought. Quote, We looked around at the dead British soldiers. Most of them had appalling wounds, which had been made worse by the ceaseless drum fire of the past few days. Some skulls were only partly there. Stomachs and chests were torn open and ripped apart. Arms and legs lay all over the place. Many bodies had received direct hits and were reduced to shapeless lumps of flesh. Dreadful sights met our eyes everywhere we looked. Most of our soldiers were there to cut the ration pouches from the dead. It was well known that the British had good things, such as binoculars and safety razors, that we did not want to leave laying around in the clay. End quote. Given the nightmarish quality of the battlefield, it is amazing that human endurance could hold out for so long. But eventually, the Australians gained the upper hand. Slowly but surely, inch by inch, trench by trench, the Australians ate away at the German positions. After his first attempt fell flat on July 28th, Leggy and 2nd Division set to work preparing a new attack. 
In the wake of that terrible debacle, Leggy became the target of severe criticisms from Go and Haig. On July 29th, Haig wrote this scathing critique of the Australian performance. Quote, The attack by the 2nd Division upon the enemy's position between Pozier and the windmill was not successful last night. From several reports, I think the cause was due to a want of thorough preparation. He then continued, After lunch, I impressed upon Go and his staff that they must supervise more closely the plans of the Anzac Corps. Some of their divisional generals are so ignorant and so conceited that they cannot be trusted to work out unaided plans of attack. End quote. This passage shows Haig at his insensitive worst, and his comments were certainly unfair to the troops involved. Although it is eloquent testimony to the ignorance of British command, it need not be taken out of context. Leggy was aware of the immense responsibility placed on his shoulders, and whether he was made aware of Haig's comments is beside the point. In his second crack at Pozier, Leggy showed his mental fortitude. Preparations were much more thorough. To ensure complete destruction of the protective wire and the trenches of the OG lines, heavy howitzers were brought forward and given 5,000 rounds of high explosives to complete the job. In addition, several lines of jumping off and communication trenches were added as well. Leggy's persistence in delaying for adequate preparation would pay off dividends. When the attack began at 6pm on Friday, August 4th, it was a complete success. The Australians were able to punch a hole into OG-1, then capture the middle ground before reaching OG-2. Similarly, 25th Battalion was able to advance up the trenches, stopping just short of the Pozier windmill. With the flank finally secured, 2nd Division's left-hand brigade was finally able to move beyond the village outskirts, and after some hard fighting, reached Muket Farm. Their advance had also been assisted by two British divisions, the 48th and 12th Divisions, which had attacked adjacent to Ovieres and Muket Farm. However, this was as far as the Australians would go. Muket Farm became a site of horrific slaughter. It would change hands multiple times over the next month, and by September had been reduced to a pile of scorched wood. On September 3rd, the 1st Anzac Corps was finally pulled off the line, and was replaced by another Dominion force about to make its first appearance on the Somme, the Canadians. Canadian and British forces would then move on to capture Muket Farm on September 16th. The Battle of Pozier occupies a significant place in Australian memory. Alongside Fromel's, it is best remembered as a pointless slaughter, ordered by negligent generals who were ignorant of the conditions at the front. In 42 days of combat, 1st Anzac Corps suffered 23,000 casualties, shared evenly among the three divisions. In four days, 1st Division suffered 5,285 killed, wounded, or missing. 2nd Division lost 230 officers and 6,600 other ranks, while 4th Division lost 4,649 officers and men. Staggering losses for a village few in 1916 could identify on the map. The question now becomes, was it worth it? And if so, is there a way of offering a nuanced view of the battle? I think we can start by laying to rest the notion that Pozier was a pointless battle. 
If one is to argue its irrelevancy, then one must also ask to what objectives was it irrelevant to? Bapalm, Lille, Brussels, Berlin? While it is true Pozier was not a major city, and its capture would not force the Germans to the peace table, in the context to what the British were doing on the Somme, Pozier and Pozier Ridge was an invaluable prize. One needs to look no further than the advantages it brought to the Allied camp. The capture of the village had firmly established the British atop the Pozier Ridge, looking downward onto the Bapon Plateau. This gave them multiple options. It opened an alternative approach to the Tiepfel Heights, allowing them to outflank the Schwaben and Leipzig redoubts. Furthermore, it gave the British the option of expanding their front in the south. Rawlinson's flank was now secure, and 4th Army could begin pushing on Jinchi Guillemont in preparation of Foch's offensive. From a strategic perspective then, the battle made sense. But what of the cost? To explore this matter further, we need to examine the conduct of Herbert Goh, and whether his leadership was the prime culprit. There is one quote which has come to summarize the Australian experience at Pozier. It comes from Lieutenant J.A. Ross. In his last letter home, Ross spoke of the murder of many of my friends through the incompetence, callousness of those in higher authority. Ross's use of the word murder here is interesting, no doubt because it can be seen as a direct reference to Go, or the more likely target, James Leggy. Australian historians are just as tough on their own as they are on the British. Certainly, Go's desire to see the Australians attack again and again deserves its share of criticism. Even the most ardent defenders of British generalship agree that Go's handling of the Australians was far from practical. As historians Gary Sheffield and Helen McCartney have written, Go's military vices outweighed his virtues. But if Go is deserving of our ire, we need to be careful not to make the same mistakes as his critics. While it is easy to dismiss him as incompetent, very few of Go's critics have come up with realistic alternatives. Could he have delayed further attacks on the ridge? If so, then was this a realistic or even plausible solution? It is clear that Go was under immense pressure to take the ridge. Both the security of the main advance and prospect of a Franco-British offensive hinged on its successful completion. Neither Haig nor Go wanted the battle to be drawn out. Plus, there was also the presence of the 48th and 12th Divisions, which were heavily engaged to the west. These two divisions, also commanded by Go, lost nearly 3,000 men apiece during the fighting, the bulk of which were incurred during the repeated efforts against the German fortifications adjacent to the village. These reasons may not be enough to satisfy Go's critics, but if anything, it does show that Pozier was part of a wider effort by the BEF, and not some random objective assigned to the rough-and-tumble Australians. That being said, it would be wrong to undervalue what the Battle of Pozier meant for the Australian experience. In six weeks of fighting, 1st Anzac Corps suffered as many casualties as they had at Gallipoli. If Gallipoli is seen as Australia's coming of age, then it was at Pozier where they forged their own identity. As a French witness once recorded, We French fight for our country, our ideals, and our flag. Australians appear to fight because they like to fight. Although the Australians were new to the Western Front, 
they were not new to combat. To some, their arrival on the Somme marked the end of monotonous drills and parades. As Lance Corporal Douglas Horton recalled in the days before the attack, quote, Though every hour brought more certainty before us, the uncertainty of the future, all it conveyed was this. On the morrow, when the success had been attained, some of us would not be there. It did not affect our will to do or die. It did not detract one iota from the dash of the charge. It simply gave us knowledge and new thoughts. That was all. End quote. What the Australians accomplished at Pozier was nothing short of remarkable. They weathered horrific conditions and watched as their friends were fed intravenously to the industrial slaughter. In the words of William Philpot, Pozier would become the sacred ground where Australia's divergence from English heritage took root. These psalms, all smothering clay, would cement the colony's developing sense of national identity. Unsurprisingly, it was the Battle of Pozier which inspired Charles Bean, Australia's official war correspondent, to conceive the idea of an Australian war memorial, which today stands in Canberra. The centerpieces of the stunning memorial are a series of dioramas, each one depicting a separate battle fought in the Great War, from Gallipoli to 1918. The Pozier diorama is the simplest yet most chilling. It depicts four wary survivors of a Lewis machine gun company, holding an isolated and muddy shell hole near the Pozier Heights. There are ten figures in the frame, four alive and six dead. There is no sense of a bigger strategic or operational picture, nor hint of the strategic importance of the ridge. There are no silhouettes on the horizon, just the ten figures alone with the smoke and devastation. Yet, if you look closely enough, you'll notice that none of these survivors are looking back. Their heads remain forward, staring defiantly at an unseen enemy. The image encapsulates the true terror of the fight for Pozier, which can be seen as a microcosm of the Somme as a whole. Although dedicated to the Australians, the faceless figures could be any of the nationalities who fought on the Somme that terrible July. They could be the English at Contomaison, the Welsh at Mametz, or South Africans at Delville. Or soon enough, the New Zealanders at Flares, or Canadians at Corselette. And we must not forget those French, Senegalese, and Moroccan troops who fought in costly, lesser-known battles south of the river. Then, of course, were the Germans, who fought tooth and nail under some of the worst shelling yet seen in the war. The battlefields of the Somme would be a ghastly experience for those who passed through, and as July gave way to August, the battle was far from over. July 1916 had been a trying month for the BEF. It began with the bloodiest day in its nation's history. Yet slowly and at great cost, they were able to claw their way forward, transforming the green fields of Picardy into a shell-blasted wasteland. Contomaison, Mametz Wood, Longueval, Bazantine, Delville Wood, and Pozier became the graveyards of the Somme. Yet this trail of devastation had produced notable results. The costly line-straightening operations had knocked the Germans off balance, resulting in the suspension of the Verdun offensive and the transferring of German divisions to the west. Von Falkenhayn found his support base beginning to crumble. In early August, Kaiser Wilhelm began calling on his military staff to assess the situation, and the reports were far from favorable.
One German staff officer noted that cores were being bled regularly, like lemons in a press. And the official history records, quote, The deterioration of the army had reached a not unperilous degree. Paul von Hindenburg, reflecting back on that tense summer, wrote in his memoir that by August 1916, Germany was faced with the menace of imminent collapse. The German army on the Somme had been battered, and the operational situation was extremely serious. The number of engaged battalions had risen from 62 at the start of the battle to 138 by early August. By the end of July, the number of reinforcements had risen from 18 to 30 divisions. At first glance, this may appear to be the exact opposite of what Haig and Joff had planned for back at Chantilly. Indeed, the noted Haig critic, Dennis Winter, has argued that the presence of so many German divisions is indicative of the missed opportunities. Winter writes, quote, The energy of its initial attack was then diffused by chronic lack of coordination. And finally, if by chance the enemy showed weakness, poor staff work and inadequate training precluded exploitation. End quote. However, recent scholarship has provided ample evidence that the German field army was cracking under the strain. Falkenheim's order that each meter of lost ground be retaken had produced nothing but further misery on the German infantry. The official history of the 27th Württemberg Division had recorded, quote, What we experienced surpassed all conception. The enemy's fire never ceased for an hour. It fell night and day on the front line and tore fearful gaps in the ranks of the defenders. It fell on the approaches to the front line and made all movement to the front hell. It fell on the rearward trenches and battery positions, and smashed men and material in a matter never seen before or since. It repeatedly reached even the resting battalions behind the front, and occasioned there a terrible losses. Our artillery was powerless against it. End quote. By the end of July, Haig was pleased to note that captured officers of the elite Brandenburg Infantry Division were declaring that the German army had been beaten. Then, on August 2nd, a guards unit surrendered to the French en masse after suffering a 36-hour bombardment. Allied intelligence had assessed German losses in July as between 130,000 and 175,000. By the end of August, this would jump to 250,000. These numbers, when compared to the Meuse, paint a startling picture. During the Somme's first two months, 49 German divisions passed through, almost as many as had fought at Verdun, and it has been suggested that losses in those two months exceeded those of six months fighting on the Meuse. In terms of artillery, the situation was no better. By mid-July, von Beloff complained he could deploy just one battery every 800 meters, whereas in June, he had one battery every 375 meters. On average, this works out to one gun every 53 meters in June, to every 114 meters by August. The great historian John Terrain has referred to this as the true texture of the Somme. Not merely British attacks, but the effects these attacks had on German morale and positioning. Every time the British attacked, the Germans responded with a counterattack, and this played to British strengths. In short, Germany was wasting precious manpower just trying to keep the line from moving. And worse yet, 
she could not absorb the losses fast enough. Soon enough, the age of recruitment was expanded to old men and teenagers, who were heralded as Germany's last hope. Although Falkenhayn would later write that the Somme had comparatively little influence on the further course of the war, this could not be further from the truth. Critics of the Somme often echo Falkenhayn's statement, but the truth of the matter is that the Somme had a debilitating effect on Germany's war-making capabilities. Although the line had held, Germany had lost the initiative, and was now resorted to deflecting blow after blow. It was defense on the Somme, on the Meuse, and in Galicia. On the Italian front, the Austrians were hotly engaged when Cardona launched another Battle of the Isonzo, which pushed the Habsburgs off the Garizia Plateau. The Central Powers were being squeezed on all sides, and although German troops were putting up a remarkable endurance, one could not help but wonder if anyone would be left by the end of it. Things would get worse before they got better, and next week we'll delve into how the Central Powers handled this growing crisis. By mid-August, there were rumblings out of the Balkans that Romania was poised to join the war on the side of the Entente. Romania posed a significant threat. With nearly 800,000 men under arms and backed by an abundance of natural resources, namely wheat and oil, the Central Powers were rightly concerned that the opening of a new front in the Balkans would tip the scale in Allied favor. With no Habsburg troops left to defend this new frontier, it would take a miracle to salvage Germany's last chance at victory. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. I would like to thank our most recent donors, Michael, Oscar, and Marianne. Thank you very much for your kind contributions, guys. If you are interested in making a donation, be sure to hit the donate button on the right side of the homepage. All donations go to help keep this show running, as I'm constantly on the hunt for the most recent and up-to-date research, which can be quite expensive, so any and all help is greatly appreciated. Another way to help the show is to rate us 5 stars on iTunes. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will ensure I stay tethered to my laptop and continue working on new episodes. This has been episode 57 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.